Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. And welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. I'm very excited because today we've got the directors of the documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a documentary I have mentioned on this podcast a couple times and so have other panelists as well. And it also made my list of my 10 favorite things from 2020. So I'm very excited to have the directors, Tyler and Roman, joining me today. So if you both want to just sort of introduce yourself well, hello, Aaron. Thanks hello. for having us. My name's Roman. I'm Tyler. I'm so happy okay. to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both for being here. I'm really happy to talk to both of you. Um, like I said, I'm a huge fan of this documentary. I've watched it a few times. Um, I just Thank watched you. it again the other day and learned so much and really just fell in love with the film. And then also just, I love Mark Patton after that. It's just, he's just incredible human being. But I want to know first how your partnership came about. Mm. How long have you known each other and how did this kind of come together? Well, I'm, I met Tyler as, I, as this production was coming together. And I think all of us, Mark, me, and Tyler, were just kind of pursuing something like this in our lives. And we all just happened to come together. So Tyler and I met doing, we both work in freelance film. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we met that way. And I was looking for people to help me with this project. And I met him and it bloomed immediately. I think right. I asked you to join me like <laughs> hours after I met you and it, and it, and it just went from there. But Mark was already putting the wheels in motion to have his story out there. He just mm-hmm. hadn't figured out the right format for it yet. Right. And I think, I think like with most big things like this, it's not just one person. It's a bunch of people that have a fire burning. Cause this isn't like we were just telling. So we didn't, it's not like a horror movie. This is a documentary <laughs> with a message and all of us shared um, different aspects of this message, but we came together. And so I think all of us were meant to meet each other or we drew each other close mm-hmm. at right. the right time. Yeah. I heard we were working on a, a gay dating reality show and I was re-editing it. Roman was doing sound. And I overheard him talk to the producer of the show about what Scream Queen, like what he was doing, what he was about to start doing. And my ears perked up. And I'm like, if any project was ever tailor-made for me to be involved with, this was it. I was, you know, huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan, huge uh, gay horror fan that suddenly didn't didn't really have a community yet, but I was like, I need to be a part of this. I don't care what it takes. You can't get rid of me. How can I help? It was very, it was funny though, because uh, like now we take for granted meeting other people that appreciate other gay people that appreciate horror or women that appreciate horror. But even then, what was this five, six years ago? I remember thinking, Oh my God, it's so weird to meet Tyler. He likes all this (laughs) other, like, uh, 
unconventional stuff that I like. Right. We we definitely you know? had a shorthand, easily um, understandable. We could speak in nothing but Kelly Bundy quotes, like we were ready. <laughs> Jerry great. Blank and Kelly Bundy totally mm -hmm. defines us. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, and you have to have that if you're going to make this project work, you have to have that um, simpatico thing going on and you have to have that clicking and knowing what you're, that you're both kind of on the same page. And you can tell that with the results of, of the film. Um, and so you already mentioned, Tyler, that you were a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street. Were you a fan then too, Roman, right? You were a fan as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nightmare 2 was the horror movie that sparked my interest in the whole genre when it came out. I saw it when it first came out on VHS as a kid. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me. So I was obsessed. Of course, I was a, a horror nerd. Um, and I have evolved in this journey um from being just a fan to someone that's like behind the scenes so things have changed a bit for me but i am absolutely a fan i mean any especially of fantasy horror it makes you think and it's fun so right. elm street has always been my number one mm -hmm. same same i i'm a bit younger so i a didn't bit. get to the nightmare on elm street series until i think four or five came out I was getting them all from my older sister who was babysitting, renting the videos, and I would watch her the couch cushions. Obviously too terrified, way too young to be seeing these movies, but I was that kid then in my elementary school class who would tell everyone what happened in these <laughs> movies and how I definitely got grounded a few times for scaring the other children. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've been watching horror since I was like five, six. My babysitter showed me Poltergeist and then showed me The Shining when I was a little kid. <laughs> I didn't even know it was The Shining until I later saw it. And I went, oh, that's why I always remember a scene of blood dripping down an elevator. And I'm like, probably should not have been watching that at a young age. But totally. but it's still I mean, I still it's still one of my absolute favorite genres. And um, it pushes the boundaries so much more than other genres do. And like I've described it, it's kind of like the punk rock genre amongst all the genres. So mm -hmm. that's why I appreciate Absolutely. it so much. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it does have, you know, it's a, with the full spectrum, there are parts that needed to be questioned, like slashers, things that exploited women more. But at the same time, I think overall, you're correct. It was the punk rock genre. It was the one that was opening new ideas because they weren't trying to be as calculated. Not everything had to go through such extensive, like, marketing panels mm -hmm. of like, is this the ending that everybody in the world wants to see? Instead, there were messages that weren't always pretty, but it did advance the underdog messages more than any other genre. And it still oh, yeah. does. Yeah, definitely. It definitely does. That's what I appreciate so much about it. Um, yeah, because we talked about that last October on the podcast. We talked, well, we covered slashers and the final girl and all of that. And we also covered, you know, politics and horror and stuff like that. So yeah, it definitely, definitely does that. And then I know you were already planning it when you, when you met Tyler, you were already working with Mark on it, but how did that first come about Roman? How did you first mm. meet Mark? And you know what, at late one night I was up with anxiety trying to keep my mind off of my own horrors. And I don't know what happened, but out of the blue, I just thought whatever happened to that guy from my favorite horror movie, like I've loved part two my whole life. Why have I never thought about looking him up? Like he's 
gone. That was very odd because usually, especially with something I would revisit a lot, I would have thought, oh, I there's that guy in another movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. It just dawned on me. I have no fucking idea what happened to Mark Patton. So I started Googling him and I realized he had just recently come back into the spotlight and was writing about his experience. He was writing like his own personal blogs. He has a a book that he wrote, like a, a fictional book kind of telling stories about Elm Street. So he, he was actively speaking, but he didn't have uh, a, a wide audience yet. So mm-hmm. I just reached out to him and I said, you know, I hear that you want to make a movie. I would love to help you with this movie if you need it. And he had a crew. They were, they were, starting to come up with uh ideas of filming but it was how do i put it it was very freddy krueger centric and it wasn't really a doc about what happened Mm. and Mm -hmm. so after about a year of like planning and trial and error we switched gears and i said i understand your story and i and, and i understand your aesthetic and let's let's shift gears and i'll do it and then I found Tyler. I don't even know. You know, like it happened so fast at that point. Like I don't even remember like how long was I like trying to find somebody. But I feel like it happened within a week span. I met Tyler. I bumped my gums to everybody that could listen to me talk about this. Right. And he was and the only one that didn't look at me like, what are you talking about? I mean, no, the pitch was it's like, here's a Mark Patton Nightmare on Elm Street 2 documentary, but we want it to be like Madonna's Truth or Dare. And I was yeah. like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what the world needs. Uh-huh. We need gay horror, like superstar for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. I do recall like the thing that really, really got sold me that because in the beginning, I thought I'm going to do this. I want this movie. But is there a big enough, you know, I pictured it being more of like a very small time release. Maybe I would have copies in my bedroom that I'd mail to people once in a while. <laughs> um, right, right. But then I, when I went to meet Mark in person for, for, you know, we'd been, he was in Mexico. We spoke mm-hmm. by email for a long time. When we finally met in person, I drove to Maryland to meet him because they were doing with Lisa Wilcox and a few other actors, they were doing a screening of the Dream Master. So I got up at three in the morning and drove all the way to Maryland from New York City. And after the screening, we all went out to eat and just sat and talked about our ideas. But during that screening, I remember walking in late to this dark theater that was filled with people. And I looked around and I thought, oh, God, this is not my crowd at all. This is like they're very like it looked like a lot of rugged, straight guys that were there to see Lisa Wilcox. Very cold, stern, serious looks. And Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is not a cold, serious movie. Like, I remember (laughs) you're laughing a lot through that movie. Soul food. Exactly. (laughs) And then after that, the lights come on, Mark and Lisa, they all go to the stage for autographs, and everybody lines up. And as each person gets to Mark Patton, their whole demeanor changes. These rugged guys suddenly drop and they're just like, I've loved you always. You made me feel like it was okay to like be who I am. And like, I realized these are gay people. They're not angry straight people. They're gay people that live in a place that don't feel, they don't feel they can be free. And that as someone who's lived in, in cities for most of my life, 
I've forgotten what that's like to be in a place where you have to have your armor up all the time. And at that point I was like, Oh, this movie has to be made a big time. So that's where, that's really what ignited the whole thing and, and reminding us that like, Oh, wow. You know, we've, we have our security, but there's so many people and there was no gay horror identity at that point. It was still very, you go to these conventions and, if you're if you're gay, most people aren't noticing it. You're just trying to blend in. But now, mm-hmm. totally different. Yeah. Right. I I came into the fold probably a month before we started shooting, and at first I just kind of auditioned. I'm like, let me be your editor. Like, I will take this movie and I will, you know, make it sing. And under the um, guise that you let me shoot it as well. Like, I really want to come to Florida <laughs> and meet everybody. Like, I was. Loki being, being a nerd. Elvira was there. <laughs> Robert Waters. England was there. John Waters. Oh, Danny man. Trejo hugged me. It was great. <laughs> it was a great day. Um, but we got to Florida, and that's actually our first shoot with the whole cast and crew there. And we shot for like three or four days. And then we finally had the sit-down interview with Mark in the hotel room, where he kind of lays out the past, the present, and the future mm-hmm. of what he is trying to do with this project. And like the light bulbs go off in my head. I suddenly put into context all those stories that Roman is talking about of how people come up to him and kind of spill their guts to him of how important this movie is. At the same time, it's dawning to me why his story is so mysterious. Like how do you become the star of a feature film in the 80s and then just disappear? Mm -hmm. How do you work your way through television commercials, get to the height of opening a film, a blockbuster film at that point, and then no one sees you again. I, I needed to understand that. And that's how I helped structure the rest of it going forward. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, I, I will admit, I was not as big a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street part two this movie, this documentary, excuse me, made me a bigger fan because knowing how it's impacted people and knowing, um, you know, the story behind it and then getting to know Mark and it's, it made me change the way I view it. I, I will say, and that's one thing I really appreciate. And what I really appreciate is, and you can tell just the way you both are talking about him is how much the f- documentary loves Mark and how much it shows his humanity and what an incredible and beautiful human being he is. And I think it would be very easy for other filmmakers to be like, we're going to be this kind of like gotcha and be seedy or go, you know, deep underground and, you know, just kind of just exploit him. And that's what I really, really loved. So I'm, I'm assuming that was just very important. And that was key to, for both of you was that you had to make sure that this showed his humanity and showed what an amazing person he was and didn't oh, sure. try to be like tabloidy. Yeah. Right, it was right. a mantra that, that we, we had for sure, like protect Mark because his message was also our message to some degree. He was speaking for everybody, not just himself. He wasn't trying to say like, this is this crazy thing that happened to me that, you can't identify with and it'll make your jaw drop. It's like, this happened to me and it also happens to all of you on 
kind of the same level. Mine's just more public. And mm-hmm. so that's why it was really important for us to do that. And, 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 and we didn't even really want to exploit the, the faux character, like the David Chaskin and the Jack Shoulder. Like we needed to have some opposition and some pushback, but like we value them in this story mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and you can tell that. I mean, you can tell that even with those characters, it isn't this kind of gotcha kind of thing at all. Um, yeah, it's it's very much ex- an exploration and exploring forgiveness too. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of forgiveness explored in it. Um, yeah, I mean, but- the one challenge uh, in terms of like uh, showing the humanity, and I mean, Mark allowed himself to be flawed i guess um honest with his emotions Mm -hmm. and confusion because he was working this out in real time we weren't staging any of this stuff and sometimes it was a fine line for for us because we're always like okay so mark is being open and honest and sincere and and kind maybe blaming the wrong person i mean things like that were apparent to us because he's under our microscope but we have to, Tyler especially was trying to edit in a way where we're like, okay, are we being respectful to his story or is this exploiting it for the viewer? And how do we find the balance between the two? So it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. So right. but, it's it, but it's not honest. a fluff piece. He still has yeah. to confront things and we give him space to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that... Um on his face, just, I mean, his face is so expressive. It's so, so incredible to watch. Um, Did you have any pushback from anybody else like that you were trying to get on there? Did anyone hesitate about wanting to be part of the project? Nope, not at all. That was, that was the surprising thing. Um, Even David Chaskin was an extremely uh, agreeable and approachable candidate to be a part of the conversation. I mean, he was last. He There were some other things going on, but everybody else, and I always like to point out that all of the actors you see that sat down and spoke with us, none of them were prepped for what the conversation was. And when they found out, they were completely opened up, right? Most of them thought, here comes Freddy Krueger questions. What was it like, you know, on the set? And they were like, mm-hmm. let's talk about AIDS, you know? And then they're like, <laughs> Oh, wow. And knowing that, oh, shoot, this is like a bigger story that I'm a part of. They were really enthusiastic, right? Like mm-hmm. even Robert England wouldn't right, shut up right. for like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> he, he promised us 10 minutes and spoke for nearly an hour. And that was wow. great stuff. Yeah. Things you never hear him talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned so much about, you know, New York in the 70s, disco life and and the, the shift in the 80s. That mm-hmm. was yeah, that was good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've talked before on this podcast, we've mentioned, I've said a lot that Hollywood likes to claim it's this very liberal and open-minded place and very welcoming for everybody. And a lot of times that's so not true. Do you think at all, do you think homophobia in Hollywood has gotten like better at all, less homophobic? I mean, do you think it's changed at all? It's definitely gotten better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the key lies in what your your opening sentence about it leading the way. The problem is, is it doesn't. It no longer leads. Hollywood just feeds what 
the public are wanting. So there are no risks. There are no, in general, there are no risks and there are no stories that push boundaries. So yes, it's loosening its grip on homophobia, but only because the people already are. So Mm -hmm. that to me feels like we need to flip that more and things might move along quicker. Yeah. You know, we, we are getting like, oh, the, all these out actors are still getting roles, but um, are they like, uh, are, is, do you have to be super beautiful to be that, that character in Hollywood? And like, do, how much has gone into like testing, like, okay, is he going to lose all his fan base? It's still a numbers game. And that's that's really where the problem lies. And I think that until the public demands more, I don't see Hollywood stepping up. But I do see independent productions taking the reins in a different direction and saying, we don't care about all that. And people are like, like this is the golden age of documentaries, right? People seem to want to know more. So <laughs> this could be the key to maybe either stepping up Hollywood's game or maybe creating some challenge for it. Like do it ourselves. Right. Yeah. And they're thriving. People are watching. So now, I mean, now every studio, every TV channel has its own streaming network and they need more content and you can't just have every show be about white 20 somethings drinking coffee. It's like, we need diversity (laughs) of voices. We need Mm -hmm. better, different perspectives. We need, you know, a lot. We need a lot. Well, just just like this show, we're we're not in a radio uh, studio. We're doing mm-hmm. it ourselves. So, you know, and and that seems to be the passion that people have is doing their own. So, I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and everybody deserves to see themselves. Is what I've said. Everybody deserves to right. see themselves reflected back. I mean, you know, people like to d- dismiss that and say it's not as important, but it's so, so important. It's, it's not yourself. important to people who have a plethora of role models to choose exactly. from. Exactly. If you can be any of the Avengers, mm-hmm. yeah, you're fine. Not everyone gets to have something readily available in the supermarket or a sticker on a banana. You know, it's we need plenty more archetypes. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's just that that privilege where people just don't want to look at the fact that you're privileged to be able to see yourself reflected constantly day in and day out. You are there on screen. So yeah, definitely everybody deserves to see themselves. I say it constantly on this show because it's just so important. And I wish more people would realize that but but it is true when you have more people doing it on their own. And doing it independently and starting their own way of, of showing things and their own way of making things. Um, that's where maybe more of the change will come from, hopefully. Um, and people demanding it and people paying to go see it. That's the other things you have mm-hmm. to right. use that's, your dollars. That's a thing, too. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're a member of the community and you are wanting to see more of yourself represented in this, you have to support the things that are getting you there. And... Sometimes that means giving up money. If you're always <laughs> waiting for movies to hit streaming and you don't actually go rent them, then there's mm-hmm. harder evidence for people to prove that, hey, people actually want to watch this and you should give me more money to make more things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
And you've already sort of touched on the fact that you would see a lot of gay men come up to Mark and, and tell him how much they appreciated the character and how much the character helped him a lot. Um, and you have a lot of that in the documentary too. Did any of that surprise you? Um, I, I know you talked a little bit, Roman, about how you were surprised that the men that you thought, you thought they were all straight men and they weren't. Um, but did any of it surprise you how big that reach was? Of course, absolutely. Um, you, you know what? I think the best way for me to explain it was that I was one of those people and I was young. I didn't see this movie and grasp subtext. I just identified with it. And that's the beauty of horror movies is you can identify without fully understanding. You just go through this experience and you feel like a release and you're able to like process things better. So I do, this movie was important for me. Uh, but I do recall right away as a kid that the, it was not a well-received movie. And if I said I loved it, I remember feeling like the the reply was always going to be like, that's the gay one. That's the dumb one or whatever. So I was always kind of very dismissive. And and so I kind of just kept that to myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, not like a secret, but I realized that there was a lot of people like me that had similar stories and it awoke a lot in me. So hearing these other people talk about stuff and realizing like, oh, I, I don't, I'm not alone in liking this weird movie, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I was really surprised with how emotional everything got. Wasn't really ready for that. Right. I was, it, I, I was really on uh, like ready to, I was always braced to defend. And then as we were, as we were recording and meeting people and interviewing, I realized quickly like, oh my gosh, like I need to be running for tissues more than anything else. It was mm -hmm. not, I didn't have to defend this movie. So. Right. It became very emotionally draining, especially for Mark, because he's getting mm -hmm. people coming up to him all day long and kind of sharing traumatic experiences in which people found comfort in his movie, in his performance. And they're like, I see myself in this film and watching you you know, face the monster allowed me to face my monster in real life. And you're getting that kind of emotional story every five minutes and it mm -hmm. becomes daunting after a while. And uh, for, an, for a non-horror fan, for an outsider, it's funny to think that people are coming to Nightmare on Elm Street 2 to like find their gay, gay safe place. But if you think about it in 1985, there's no Will and Grace, there's no mm -hmm. call me by your name. Queer people in pop culture are not front and center filling movie theaters, being the number one rental at Blockbuster for weeks on weeks on end. This was extra special because it was popular and accessible. People could rent this movie and no one thought twice why they were drawn to it. They're like, oh, you just like horror? You just like Freddy Krueger? He's a pop culture megastar. But if you're a queer kid, you're like, I get to enjoy myself in this movie and I don't have to explain it to anyone. And for that, for that little bit of comfort is really important. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, people dismiss horror and they dismiss film a lot of times, at the power of it. Um, when you have something that you're, you're afraid to express or you're afraid to show a part of yourself 
And if you see it embraced in a film, that can be so powerful or any form of media really. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that was, I, I was crying during a lot of that. That was just uh -huh. so powerful and so amazing. Cause it's just like, I, I, that's why I love film. And that's why I love horror is you can find a piece of yourself in, in it sometimes. And when you do, it's, it's amazing. Or when it makes you examine a part of yourself or something you've been fearing or something you've been hiding, um, that's just, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. So yeah, yeah. that's, I feel, I feel like, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was definitely why I gravitated a lot towards horror films as a young kid being, mm -hmm. you know, closeted and terrified of bullies. Like I would watch these final girls kind of stand up to people, have that quippy one-liner and fight back. And I was like, oh, I'm going to use that whenever I get in that situation again. I'm going <laughs> to tap into my inner Alice and grab those nunchucks. I'm going to be okay. But that's the thing. Nightmare on Elm Street as a series gets lumped in with all these other horror uh, franchises, but it's so different. Like the women in those movies were treated so differently. They were, they had fleshed out personalities and none of them were like, they weren't used for the male gaze for the most part. You know, there weren't sex scenes just because. And all of them really kick ass. Like, the, I, that's why I think that opened the door for a lot of women horror fans, too. And mm -hmm. in the 80s, when, you know, people were hating Mark in that movie, uh, it still wasn't okay for women to be horror fans for the most part. Like, you didn't really see that. So mm -hmm. I think that while they were able to, so as gay viewers, you didn't really even have the, the protection of your female friends in this world. My dog is crying now. <laughs> um, but, but, but that genre, I think that Nightmare on Elm Street needs to be recognized as something that also did some great characters for women in this, you know, gave them some value. Mm -hmm. And it was fun. They were fun movies. Yeah, they, yeah, they were, they were, when I was growing up, it was like my favorite series was the nightmare series. And I was telling someone the other day, I even had a dream when I was young that I was going on a date with Freddy Krueger. I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, like I, dream date Freddy from dream warriors. When he comes yeah. in with a tuxedo. Where do you yeah. keep the bourbon? <laughs> But I was actually scared to go on the date and I was telling my mom, but he kills people. And she's like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> He's so rich. He's on yeah. every movie. <laughs> It'll be fine. And I actually, I was at the Women in Horror Film Festival last year, right before everything shut down in Atlanta, um, because I had a, a short script and competition there. And Heather Langenkamp was there. And that was just like, and I got to meet her and hug her. And that was just amazing and incredible. But one thing I did notice there is I think there still is a problem with people accepting women in horror in some aspects, or at least people going to see, because a lot of these screenings would be very empty or not as many people there. And I think it was because of that whole thing of seeing, oh, it's a women in horror thing. It probably won't be as good or I don't know, as horrific or something, but yeah. So I think there's still some room for improvement there. Absolutely. I mean, I do think that, you know, Tyler and I speak a lot about how I think that the 
we the gay community owes a lot to women in terms of helping us especially out of the aids crisis and i feel like this is our time to turn around and help them you know especially with civil rights and everything that's going on now but also just in horror in general like now that we can walk through these conventions freely knowing we're accepted i think it's time for everybody to be able to feel that way too so we've there's another film called fred heads that we're friends with the girls who are doing that deandra and Paige, and and they've really i mean they love cosplaying they're they mm-hmm. always are nightmare on elm street is their favorite thing so i feel like shouting out to them whenever i can because they actually have received much more pushback than a lot of the gay fans have um, because they're the ones that are kind of you know, direct contrast to the male gaze is the female that's like, stop it. So uh, I feel like they need our voices with them right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and speaking of tapping into fears, are there any other horror movies out there that kind of tapped into any of your own personal struggles, your own fears, anything like that? Hmm. Oh, like what am I afraid of? My my deep personal human <laughs> well, trauma. Well, it could be any <laughs> anything you feel comfortable talking about. How much time do you have? Right. <laughs> I. No, that's a big question. I don't. I mean, I for me, it was always changing, um, and I like all of it. And there's, you know, as I grow, I I stop liking certain things and liking other things, but. I think overall, I've always been a fan of the Haunted House movie. I love Haunted Houses. I'll watch them even if they're bad. I love them. Uh, so there's something there. But the cool thing about those movies is it's a sub, it really goes deal with like your subconscious. So it really could be anything, mm-hmm. whatever your anxiety is. Uh, but I definitely loved fantasy horror, like Phantasm, Elm Street, Hellraiser, those things, because there's so much more imagination and dreamlike yeah. stuff in those yeah. I, I, I do appreciate a good supernatural horror film um i'm also you know pet cemetery was the start <laughs> for me that was the first horror movie that i saw behind the couch cushions my sister knew i was terrified of zelda and would <laughs> use that to her advantage whenever she wanted something from mm-hmm. me she's like go get it go get me a pop or i'm gonna feed you to <laughs> zelda in the basement <laughs> And Gosh. so now I just have a, a really intense uh, body horror. Like that's the thing that gets me the most. I just saw Possessor the other day and that destroyed me for a good day or two. It's got some really great nightmare visuals in it as well. It, it, it gives you everything that you want. What kind of horror do you like? Um, well, I, I like slashers, but I also like, I like, um, psychological horror as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of my favorite horror films is the movie May. I don't know. If yes. Yes. I just, I love that movie because it's so much, a, it's also a character study. So I like those as well, where you're following a character and getting to know them and it gets creepier and scarier as it goes. And it kind of questions your, you're kind of questioning yourself too, because you feel for her in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. Yet what she ends up doing is not okay, but you end up feeling for her as well. Right. So you like you, those. you yeah. empathize with her. She's mm-hmm. very sim- sympathetic, very much like a Carrie White, where you're like on her side yeah. and you want mm-hmm. everyone else to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely, 
Team Carrie, Team May. Um, I just watched. It's not a horror movie, but it feels like a horror movie. I care a lot with Rosamund oh, yeah. Pike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I w- aggravated the entire movie. Like they can't do this, can they? Just <laughs> it gave me so much tension and anxiety. And that ending did not do anything to relieve that. I was just angry the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have mixed feelings on that movie. I thought it was okay. I I love her. She was fantastic incredible um but i'm kind of she's created a new archetype for herself in the same way that charlie's theron young adult is Mm -hmm. like i know that woman i'm from minnesota i know exactly who that is (laughs) yeah yeah she definitely has done that but yeah psychological horror i would say and then also the paranormal but i've had a lot of personal paranormal experiences oh my god tell me Well, I saw my first spirit when I was five years old. Um, and it was just like a woman standing in a doorway. And I remember I was like calling my mom and she came in and she like walked right through the woman. And she's like, that's, it's nothing's there. Nothing's there. And so, and I've had a lot of experiences like that. Um, I lived in an area in, I grew up in Colorado and I lived, there's an area that was built over a cemetery, literally built over a cemetery and they didn't move a lot of the bodies. And this is true. They just it's... move the headstones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. So it's like poltergeist. I know. So I have to show you what's the um, the the lock screen on my phone is always uh, <laughs> Zelda Rubenstein. <laughs> I'm always repping. That's poltergeist. Awesome. Poltergeist two is even better. Yeah, when I poltergeist and poltergeist two especially were my very first favorite horror loves and. I used to be the babysitter that forced my brother and sister to watch <laughs> Preacher Kane, knowing it was going to traumatize them. That he was really scary, right? He was yes, he was absolutely terrifying, still terrifying. Yeah, but I definitely identified with the movies with like Carol Ann, which just a little kid doesn't have a lot of friends, and ghosts are trying to kill her all the time. You know, it just mm. <laughs> felt that's how my childhood felt. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about when Mark finally gets to sit down with David Chaskin. And it is this very, I think, a cathartic moment. But I want to know, do you think David fully grasped what Mark was telling him? Do you think he fully got it and came to terms with it? Not in that moment, no. I don't think so. Um, but I will say that he knew what was coming for him right? Mm -hmm. And he was gracious enough to let it happen and invite us into his home to do it and sit down. And this wasn't a quick conversation. It was all day, right? So he was a willing participant to listen. And I feel like what we as uh, people need to realize, especially now with broken communication all over the place, (laughs) Sometimes just being respectful, being honest, but being respectful will plant seeds that will grow when you part ways. So that's that's kind of my take on it. I feel like when you are face to face, sometimes the emotions are so high that you yeah. don't have time to process how the other person might feel. You might feel empathy that you see someone's hurt, but you don't know their whole story unpacked in a sentence. So mm-hmm. But I do think David has it in him. We haven't caught up with him since. So I don't know. 
What do you think, Tyler? I, I do remember the tension in the room. Um, it We had shot in early January in upstate New York. And we knew at the top that we didn't want Mark and David to see each other until we were going to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. So we started off the day interviewing David Chaskin and it was only supposed to be like an hour. And then suddenly there was a hailstorm, So we had to stop and break. And now picking back up, it's been three hours. And Mark has been waiting in the van in the cold this whole time. And finally, we're done with David. We go get Mark, we follow him into the interview space and they see each other and they have their conversation. 20 minutes of like pleasantries and then they get to actually talk about it at that moment when Mark brings up the, the, the main issue, our tape runs out. We have to stop everything. Mm-hmm. There's this three minutes of silence. Like no one can say anything until we get the cameras rolling again. So there's three minutes of silence after the thing that needed to be said has been said, but no one can respond to it. But I think in that moment, in that forced silence, actually think about how you're going to react to this, how you're going to move forward with it, mm-hmm. allowed everyone to kind of like, what exactly is the outcome of the situation? How, how can we make this work? I don't know. I don't know if it could have gotten crazy. It didn't. It was, it was nice. They, they shook hands. They took photos after all this was over. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what, what would have happened if we had just gone straight through and everyone could say the first thing that popped into their head, but we definitely left it on, on good terms. Well, I, th- I think the big thing is that David was at least willing to sit there and listen to Mark. I mean, that's huge. Even if he didn't fully get it at that moment, Mm -hmm. at least he gave Mark that opportunity to speak his truth. Right. And tell him the truth. And that's, that's huge. So huge. Absolutely. So that's why I say if he didn't, if he fully got it, meaning like he has now this true understanding Mm -hmm. of Mark's journey. Like, I don't even, as you see in the movie after the fact is when Mark's also able to sit in it and, reassess where his energy was being directed to and Mm -hmm. he says like i blamed him for a lot of things that he wasn't responsible for that doesn't mean he's blameless but it just means that mark as being in a position where everything is overwhelming sometimes you don't know which where you know what direction everything should go in so the fact that they were able to at least just have the conversation is so Mm -hmm. important and, and there, and there wasn't any honest. There wasn't any gaslighting either of like telling Mark that's not what happened or that's not how he mm-hmm. should feel. Like he was a, he was there to listen and to and to uh, take responsibility. So yeah, and that's yeah. so important. That's so so important in those kind of situations. Yeah, a lot of people that we did speak to, Jack Shoulder, and I mean, first of all, all the other actors were not they're not against Mark, but a lot of what he went through was they weren't always aware of the full scope of things. And as they listen and as they had their interviews, and then when they come and they see the movie all put together, all of them 
were like coming to us saying, oh my gosh, like it all makes sense to me now. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you're only getting the pieces, it's it's hard to see the big picture because it was such a mess, right? This whole thing was a mess. Even just pitching this movie was really difficult because people didn't understand. Like, so is this a horror doc? What is this? Well, who is that? What is, why is this important? You know, so mm-hmm. we had a lot to to unpack and put away. And, and I feel pretty proud of the way that it turned out because it could have been a very conv- convoluted story to tell. So, right. It's, you know, healing trauma in the Trojan horse of a horror movie documentary. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's like, I've already said a couple of times, it's so well done really. And Thank everybody you. I know that's seen it loves it. So yeah. So Thank you. Thank you. You. You're welcome. <laughs> um, do you view the Nightmare on Elm Street series any differently after making this? I want to say, I, yeah. I, I definitely feel like I've seen behind the curtain and I've seen the wizard for what he, like these movies were my everything as a kid. Like they were magic. They were everything that I wanted to know more about life. And now I've, I've seen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto that. I, I still love them, but um, I'm not as close to them as I was. I think it's just, you know, the man behind the curtain. It doesn't mean that you now, it's not that I don't love and value them. It's just, you know, we've, it takes the magic out of it. Working in film takes the magic out of film sometimes. Right, so right. there's that aspect. But I will say that I have absolutely new appreciation for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and for things that I was taking for granted and not realizing, like I said about how important or just how they empowered women, I don't see that in a lot. There's so many horror movies that do have women that aren't you know, just being traumatized, but they aren't given strength. It, t- it usually comes out in the final act accidentally. Like they're, you know, they swung the broomstick in the right way or you know, something mm-hmm. like that. But like these girls aren't like that. Right. And they're I planning. Feel like <laughs> they're, yeah. I feel like they were void of the constraints, the gender constraints. And, and I, and that was very inspirational. And I, now that I'm seeing a lot of girls step up and loving these things, it warms my heart to see that. I'm like, that, that's awesome. I, I, it did something similar for me, even though I didn't have a main character that was out and gay that I could totally latch onto. I found my workarounds, but you guys have that. And that mm-hmm. was pretty daring for that decade, mm-hmm. you know, because that, especially as those movies progressed and you got to four or five six we were later in the decade when corporate uh structure had really taken hold and they're like all right do it but we want to see x amount of minutes of boobs and this and that you know mm-hmm. and like they didn't do that and all the friday the 13th did that even halloween kind of went in that way so i kind of now that i see it that way i go wow that they could have gone along for the cash train and they just kind of did their own thing and I think that's great yeah no I I agree yeah when you can see strong women who they don't number one if they don't have to have a man to propel their story and they don't have to be helping a man in some way or something like that and they're smart and cunning 
and they know what they're doing. It's really empowering to see that. And unfortunately it can be very rare. Um, We actually are later this year, we're going to be examining the Friday the 13th movies. So (laughs) that'll be interesting because I mean, number two is still the best. I agree. I do. (laughs) I I agree too. Yeah. (laughs) They're good. I like those movies. I'm not shaming them. I'm just saying by comparison, well, you know, yeah, Elm definitely. Street is far ahead of them in that regard. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Um, well, did you learn anything about yourself from Mark as well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like the deepest, like gay sigh. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, his his story, his his um, origin story of you know, I'm a Midwest boy growing up in a small town with no gay people feeling like if I don't get up and reroute myself to a coast, I'm not going to survive where I'm at. And I feel like that part of his story, him sharing that was like so universal to me, to Roman, to countless of other, you know, queer kids in the world who have not the benefit of geography on their side where they're going to do great things as long as they can change their location. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also was uh, a little behind Mark, you know, I was, I grew up in the eighties and I was younger, you know, it, it wasn't, I lived under that umbrella fear of AIDS and it was very, even for a younger kid, you know, 10 through 15, it's traumatic. You don't fully understand it in the way that Mark and all of his friends who were more sexually active or, you know, more they were adults and how it affected them. But it still is something that you carry around with you because you don't quite understand it. Like we didn't have the information highways that we have now. You had the news that was pretty scary you had magazines that were also pretty scary. And then you had people at school that were also very scary. So you go inside yourself and as a coping mechanism, you bury it. And then now I'm in my forties and unpacking things Mm -hmm. and listening to Mark's story helped me do a lot of that. And it was very awkward at first. And but I feel like that's what why this movie was important. It wasn't about setting the record straight necessarily. It was about helping all these people unpack baggage that the world has told them, keep that suitcase closed because it's over. But we know that that doesn't make the monster go away. Mm-hmm. So there's right. my Keep analogy. that suitcase closed because you might have to run again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like don't unpack, don't get comfortable. You're not staying. Um, definitely meeting Mark, he's definitely become kind of that queer mentor that my generation, Roman's generation, definitely we've had less opportunities to have gay mentors. There's a, a generation of men who are no longer here to pass down the information that they learned to the young gays of the world. And Realizing that, realizing what that costs us, how many stories he has to share that are beneficial to kids in small towns who don't have any gay elders to like warn them about things, to teach them why certain things are done a certain way, like invaluable 
life experience mm -hmm. I've gotten from this man who I can hopefully share with the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and making this documentary is how you're sharing it. So exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah which is, which is beautiful. Um, I want to ask, there's, there's a point in this when Mark is talking about how he had a five-year plan and he met it by 30 minutes. Was there any five-year plan that either of you have had or have that you're <laughs> coming up on or that you've achieved? I mean, it, well, it did this, take us five years this, to get this yeah. movie made. Oh, yeah. It was a five-year plan. Literally, like I said, we're going to go through this long process and it's going to be awesome. And I never faltered with my drive Although we wanted to die many times. Oh, yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> I will say the great thing about the three of us coming together is that no one ever had to be the support branch consistently. We all took turns having little mental breakdowns and would lean on each other <laughs> to allow us to like regroup, mm -hmm. take a breath, start again. Like if you're getting down a, a dead end alley just turn around try another avenue keep going because we've gone too far to give up yeah yeah well we have you know and now we're gonna do more so the five-year plan continues so what is that next next <laughs> step of how what you can say at least but yeah well so we nothing's been signed and we can't really say specifics but i will say that so the 80s was a time where a big bomb dropped, right? And mm -hmm. and then when you move past Mark's story into the 90s, you now have the after effects of this bomb and the trauma and how it's been seeped into society, then what? So while the AIDS epidemic forced a lot of it forced the gay community to come out of the closet, right? But now we are seeing a new issue in the 90s, which was female empowerment. And how do those two play together? And how is one now picking up right after the other one? And so I think that that's where our next story lies. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to see whatever you both um, take on, really. Um, and I just want to lastly just ask, making a documentary, I assume there are more limitations to that or maybe even stuff that isn't as limiting as opposed to a fictional story. So what, what are some of those limitations and then some of those things that are more freeing, I guess? The hardest thing I think we dealt with was uh, like archival footage. Uh, like we have this story, we have this very linear kind of personal tale how do we visualize that? What are, what are we relying on to make this story actually land and connect with an audience? And someone's personal childhood family photos are better than others. Not everyone has a plethora or a you know archival Beyonce library of everything that she's ever done. Um, you have to get creative, and there's there's fun and art, artistry <laughs> to be found there. Um, but no, I, I, I got super jealous watching uh, Wild Wild Country and I'm like, how do they have all this footage? <laughs> I right. wish I would have been documenting Mark's life from- Well, they, the built, they yeah. built that, that doc around the footage. We didn't right, have right. that. And, and being that it was Nightmare on Elm Street 2, 
uh, it was a sequel. Sequels weren't taken very seriously at the time. Horror right. movies definitely weren't. And then his his shows with with Cher, you know, Mark mm-hmm. was on Broadway with Cher and Kathy Bates. And that was a very short run thing. There wasn't a lot of this documented. And that becomes a little bit of a challenge right. when you need that for creative storytelling on, on camera. And I do think that that is a generational thing too. Like kids of my generation have had, you know, really cheap accessible video cameras since mm-hmm. they were born. Now everyone has a video camera photograph iPhone in their pocket and they're documenting their daily lives. Like Mm -hmm. that's not something that can be, you know, retroactively applied to other people. And yeah, that that was difficult. Our our movie though was not, a lot of it was, was it, we really bit off a lot when we started this movie because it wasn't, like okay let's plan all these things it was let's plan a couple things and go with it and we just had to be ready and it really pushed us to learn more than we knew on the spot because it was happening in real time and stuff was playing out as you know it it wasn't mark reflecting on events that happened it was stuff that was about to happen that we weren't aware of Mm -hmm. so it would kick our story in different directions all the time, especially then as the political landscape laid out as it did. Mm-hmm. And then, then even as people became aware of our project, when we did our, we started shooting a good six months before we launched our Kickstarter campaign. And once that happened, then everyone in the world knew what we were doing. And all these people started coming to the forefront being like, mm-hmm. I love what you're doing, but you have to tell this part of the story. You have to tell this part of the story. You got to find this person. And what we thought we were doing grew exponentially in every direction all at the same time. And kind of holding on to the reins <laughs> as you're flying yeah. 80 miles into the future. So uh, whatever. I don't know my metaphors. But um, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a great learning experience. I definitely... Mm-hmm was naive in the beginning like oh yeah i know what to do and now i'm like we're gonna die yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well i want to thank both of you so much for sitting down and talking to me this i have had a lot of fun talking with both of you um i've really enjoyed this conversation and again i want to thank you so much for this documentary um i do think this documentary will have an impact on people um, for future generations to come. So I do want to say that. So thank wow, you very thank much. Thank you so much. This conversation was wonderful. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate having you on. So I'll just have you both close out. And if you want to tell me where you can be found, or if you have anything you want to plug, start with you, Roman. So, you know, we are on all of our social media with Scream Queen Doc. Um, all of us take turns posting on there. So it reaches all of us. Um, and we are we have a podcast we do yeah <laughs> we <get laughs> sorry to... i was like what's it called <laughs> what is that thing ghouls <laughs> on film oh, yeah. awesome awesome yeah. so so we've been we're a little looser on there it's like wednesday adams and pugly arguing most of the time right right <laughs> We interview other filmmakers about uh-huh. the horrors of filmmaking, not just what the, you put on screen, but the shit that happens off of it as well. Uh, okay. um, and that we're on 
Twitter, Instagram. I was on TikTok, but recently got booted for being too sexy. So we're going to start again. <laughs> for being too sexy? you Were, were you right, banned right. or something? It, I, I was banned, but I it wasn't even a sexy post. It was a little bit homophobic, if you ask me. And I will talk about it somewhere else, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried TikTok. TikTok confuses me. I do not understand. It. Thank you. Okay. Same. I'm else. Same. Yeah, I it's okay. Yeah. If any of you kids are listening, you get on TikTok and you become <laughs> famous overnight. You run away and join the big city and you can have all your dreams come true as well. There you go. Your 15 second loops. Yeah. Um, and where can they get find off my you? Lawn. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm at <laughs> typicalfilms.com, Tyler Ray Jensen on Instagram, the Tyler Jensen on Twitter, but I don't ever use that. Facebook is dead. Um, what else you got? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's funny Hire us if you need work. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because Instagram also confuses me. I have somebody else that handles our Instagram account because... I don't know what it is about that. I, it's so weird to me because I'm someone that some people come to for technological advice, but for some reason I can't get TikTok and Instagram. I don't, I don't get that, but, <laughs> but anyway. That's the next I wish way, I could help you, know? you yeah. but they're just going to block me again. I, I, know, I push the I limits. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is Aaron. You can follow me on Twitter at E April beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, if you'd like to be a potential guest, feel free to reach out to us at It's a Fandom Thing Pod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, Aaron is going to fully geek out when we talk about Donnie Darko because, as I've mentioned before, I've watched this movie more than any other movie ever. So that'll be a (laughs) door. That was awesome. So that should be a lot of fun. It's going to be a really packed panel, but that'll be a lot of fun. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing and Black Lives Matter. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Aaron Amos, and our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Aaron Marlowe, and remember, keep that fandom spirit alive.